We are tonight talking about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about the kingdom of God um, in, in testimony and through the things that God has been doing in our lives. Now we're going to talk about the kingdom of God in a little more of a theologically directed way, but it's still the kingdom of God. And it's amazing when you think about all the things that God does. God's program isn't just to make you comfortable. God's program isn't just to help you feel better when you're struggling with something. God's program isn't just to have a way to get folks together and enjoy a really good meal and good time together. God's program goes a lot farther than that. God has a kingdom. Now, kingdom means there's a king. We don't understand this quite so much. We live in a Western culture, uh, a, a, a culture that has a lot of advantages because of the way it's set up. Uh, we have uh, individual rights and freedoms that some parts of the world do not have. Even our neighbors to the north in Canada, they don't have some of the rights that we have uh, in our constitution. It's just, it's, a, it's similar up there, but it's different. There are rights and privileges that we enjoy here that are not guaranteed to anybody anywhere else in the world. Or if they are guaranteed to anybody, anybody anywhere else in the world, it's because we did it first here and they copied and pasted where they are. They realize that those rights really do uh, are something to emulate. And so they put it into their constitutions, their laws, their statutes. We don't understand what it's like to be in a kingdom. We don't have a king. We have a president, but he's not a king. He has certain powers, but he's limited in the powers. We have a Congress, but they are, they are not the king. They cannot unilaterally make a law that, that makes them completely in charge of anything and everything. We, don't, we have a Supreme Court, but they are not kings. Now, sometimes these different groups of government try to take more power. Sometimes those groups of government yield power to another branch. But they are different branches. Power is vested across a swath and not just all concentrated in one individual. We don't understand what it's like to live in a kingdom. If you've ever lived in a kingdom, I haven't. But if you've ever lived in the kingdom, you might understand a little bit better what this is like. One guy says something and it's suddenly the law. Doesn't matter if he was drunk. Doesn't matter if he was in a bad mood. Doesn't matter if he was just completely confused. You remember, you remember the decree that Darius put out? that you can't pray to anybody but him for 40 days. And then Daniel breaks that decree because he's just going to continue on doing what he is going to do. He's going to pray to God. And, and how does Darius feel when Daniel breaks that law and it's, it's brought up to him? He's saddened by the news, but I can't change the law. Well, wait a minute, you're the king. You can change the law. But no, that sets a bad precedent. That, that might make other laws questionable. He's in a predicament. To have the law set by one individual, we don't understand what that's like. We don't understand what it's like for everybody to have to bend the will to one individual. So you're going to have to use a little bit of imagination, but I don't think you're going to have to use a whole lot. Because while we might not live in a kingdom called the United States of America, we do live in a kingdom. It's God's kingdom. 
This is what the Baptist faith and message says about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe and his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Sorry, guys. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ at the end of this age. Sorry. Okay, there we go. That's the end of it. Sorry. I I was, uh, yeah, anyway. All right. What you might hear in that, if you're listening carefully, and by the way, you can always read this on the Southern Baptist Convention's website. You can actually just Google or, or search on your favorite search engine, Baptist Faith and Message, and this, this will come up, and you can read the whole thing. It, it'll probably take you about 20 minutes to read the entire uh, Baptist Faith and Message. You might notice, though, that it talks about the kingdom in a couple different ways. The first way is a general way. It's a general kingdom. This is a kingdom that is generally applicable. The way the Baptist Faith and Message puts it is this. Hold on. There we go. The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe, and then it goes on from there. So there's this general sovereignty. God is sovereign over all of his creation. The sovereignty began at Genesis 1. Uh, I'm going to give this up, so sorry. That just That'll be a good verse to leave up there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning, from the very get-go, God is the one in charge. And he's the one creating everything. And God's not only creator, he's the owner. Uh, Psalm, 4, Psalm 24, 1. There we go. Y'all have, I'm sorry, y'all. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell within. So everything belongs to God. Not only is he creator, he is owner. He, he owns it all. Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? It's God. Yeah. That's an old hymn. You recognize that hymn? Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Give to us and always will. Who is it died yet lives still? Nobody but my Lord. Man, I was going to a missionary Baptist church that was so long ago. I I started at a Southern Baptist church in January of 2001. And before that, I was going to a missionary Baptist church. And uh, it was, it was, yeah, so it's been over 20 years since I've heard that song. And just for some reason, that I can still, uh, maybe it's that bass line of that song, you know. I don't know. Anyway, God, God is the owner of everything. He is the one who reigns sovereign over the entire universe. You can see this in the plagues in Egypt. In fact, look in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 6. We're going to have a couple of, or chapter 8, excuse me. Exodus 8, there's a couple of different times that this recurs, this pattern within the plagues. So, so Israelites are in Egypt. They're in slavery. God hears the cries, sends Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. But there's this Pharaoh guy who's getting in the way. No problem for God, right? He knows this, and in fact, he is willing it so that he can show off his power and rescue Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, to use Bible language. So during these plagues of Egypt, God is displaying his sovereignty over all nature and, by the way, over Egypt's false gods through this series of mighty acts, these plagues. 
And during um, the plague of frogs, frogs hopping around everywhere, they're all over the place. And you think a plague of frogs wouldn't be that bad, but once you get like several hundred million of them around, it, it gets pretty bad pretty quick. And um, Moses is talking to Pharaoh, and Moses asks him, when, when do you want all this to end? When do you want me to pray that these frogs will be taken away? Look at Exodus 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow. Now, I don't know why he didn't say right now, but he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, watch this, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. He declares the plague of flies in, chap in chapter 8, verse 22. Moses is telling Pharaoh God's words. He says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. We're warning about the upcoming plague of hail. God speaks again through Moses. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you myself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Do you see the pattern starting to form here? Then, declaring that it will end, Moses said to him, verse 29, this is 929, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. Thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. So who's in charge? God's in charge. Every single one of these plagues demonstrates God's sovereign reign over the universe, even the most violent events in nature. In fact, we don't call him Lord for nothing. The name Lord even means master. We forget that. We think of Lord and we sanitize it, right? That was the name for a master. That was the one that you were serving, that you dare not disobey, that you dare not go against, that you dare not ignore. Maybe we should just call him master. Help renew that picture in our mind. Because that's exactly what Lord means. <laughs> Jeremiah makes it pretty clear. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, he says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure his indignation. And God, the everlasting king, gives us some commands to follow. Ezekiel 20, verse 19. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Do you hear the pattern here? Now he's Lord over all creation. He's Lord over all people too. I mean, we are a part of his creation. We see Jesus exercising God's authority here on earth. Matthew 9, there's this uh, uh, paralytic man. Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees get all up in arms. What do you mean? Well, only God can forgive sins. Jesus responds to them, Matthew 9, 5. For which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. In other words, is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven? I mean, you can't really verify that's true or false, right? Or is it easier for me to say, rise and walk? Now, that's something you can put the test to, right? Verse 6, but then you may know. There's this pattern here. 
Do you see it? Do you hear it? You should. I've said it every verse for like the last 10 verses that you may know, right? All these things God is doing, exercising his authority. It it always seems to come back to, I'm doing this so you'll know the truth, right? That you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now that is pretty cool. I think verse seven is even cooler. And he rose and went home. He says, I want you to know I have authority to forgive sins. Get up, go home. Take your bed with you. And the guy does. That's one, that's what you call an understatement. <laughs> Simple statement of fact. He doesn't get up shouting. He doesn't start dancing a jig in the middle of the floor. He just gets up, picks up his bed, and walks off. Just before Jesus ascends into heaven. What is it that he says? What's the last thing that he tells the disciples at the end of Matthew? Something about making disciples of all nations. Y'all have never heard that one, right? What does he say immediately before it? On what grounds is he giving us a commission to go make disciples of all nations? Baptizing them, teaching them. What, What does he base that on? Verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I wonder where he got that from. God's kingdom is a general kingdom over all creation. God has all authority, all sovereignty, all power, all knowledge, all, all. And if that's the case, then his reign must be over all. But you know, we don't always see the effects of that very strongly, especially in other people that aren't following Jesus. So while it is a general kingdom, it's also a particular kingdom. I'd like to think about it like this, okay? Have you ever had tea that tasted like water, okay? I mean, it was just so weak. You barely taste anything in there, okay? Okay? My mom makes tea that tastes like water. Sorry, mama. Sorry. It's just not very strong. I've, I've had... You go to Chick-fil-A and the tea will give you diabetes. I'm sorry, Chick-fil-A. I know I work there. I know I make the tea sometimes, but you can dial it back a little bit. It's okay. The tea at Chick-fil-A is much more concentrated because it has lots and lots and lots of sugar. My mom doesn't put a lot of sugar in her tea. And so you can hardly taste much of anything at all because it's watered down. It's diluted. When I think of the kingdom of God in general, I see a lot of people that carry around a diluted kingdom. It's a kingdom where they're only using one tea bag for like five gallons of tea, and it's just not enough. Where they're only using a tiny, uh, a couple of, of tiny scoops of sugar. But then there's other people that have diabetes tea worth of kingdom of God, where it's overwhelming. Where anytime you're around them, you sense the presence of God around them. You know somebody like that? Are you somebody like that? Now, I'm not saying go go uh, make your tea, diabetes tea. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is we should be so concentrated with the power of God in us that people cannot heal, feel, uh, cannot, man, people cannot help but feel God's presence around us. More than that, we're following him so closely 
that anybody near us can get a good sight of him too. His kingdom needs to be not only a general kingdom, but a particular kingdom. Baptist faith, the message puts it this way. The kingdom of God includes, and, and we just talked about the general sovereignty, but the second half of that sentence, his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Okay? In other words, God reigns over all, but his reign is much more concentrated in some rather than others. And, and the differentiating factor, the sugar that makes the tea sweet, or the lack of sugar that doesn't make the tea sweet, that's how closely we're following God. Look in Matthew chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to do a little, what we might call, macro exposition. Okay? So normally, when we look at Bible verses, I kind of get more into details of it. Like I'll give you a big picture view of the passage, but I'll also give you little details that show that big picture, that fill that picture out. This time, I want us to take a wider look, okay? When, when the gospel writer, when Matthew is writing his gospel, there is a transition that happens in Matthew 4, 17. Matthew 1, 1, all the way through... Uh, 4.16 carries from the genealogy of Jesus through his birth, um, which really doesn't cover his birth, just everything around his birth, and all the way through Jesus being baptized and tempted in the desert. The preparation for Jesus' ministry. So you might call 1.1 through 4.6 the preparation for Jesus' ministry. 4.17 begins the actual fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. And it begins with this verse. From that time, this is verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rest of the book up until the crucifixion account is going to unpack that verse. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are the two big themes in Jesus' ministry. Repent and the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's why many of the parables start with things like the kingdom of heaven is like. That's why Jesus is confronting religious uh, uh, rulers of the day who aren't living what they're preaching, what they're proclaiming, what they're claiming to live by, who say that they're following the law but are really shunning the law in order for a man-effort-based righteousness that does not meet God's standard. They need to repent. Many other people need to repent too. It's not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes and the elders that need to repent. It's every single individual that Jesus is encountering has that same sin problem and all of them need to repent. That's why Jesus doesn't just say to some people repent, but to other people, God loves you the way you are. No, he says God loves you the way you are, but he's going to change you. Repent. Let's see it play out. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right? With me so far? Okay? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
You want to know what repentance looks like? That's repentance. Well, wait a minute. What sin are they committing? It's not sin to fish. In fact, this was their livelihood. They completely altered their lives. They left their nets. They left their boat. They left their father. They left everything behind. All four of these men followed Christ. They turned away from their own lives and turned toward Christ. And they did so immediately. That is the picture of repentance. And then, what about the kingdom? Well, verse 23. And he went all throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Do you notice what he's doing? He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. That's the kingdom of God. That's the particular kingdom of God. It's not just God reigning over all the universe in some unseen hand kind of a way. It's his people teaching, preaching, living, healing. Now, I don't have the power to heal. I can't put my hand on you and make infirmities go away. Sorry. I wouldn't make it as a televangelist, I guess. But I know some doctors who can do some pretty good work. I, 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 can't, I can't do everything that Jesus did. But I can definitely do some of it. And while I might not be able to heal your physical infirmities through building good relationships and, and helping you know God better, I can help heal some of those emotional wounds, some of those mental incapacities, some of those spiritual deficiencies. The kingdom was not manifested in the establishment of a government or the equipping of the military. It was not initiated in some religious ritual or founding of a movement. The kingdom of heaven comes through teaching, preaching, healing, and what immediately follows What's in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7? Sermon on the Mount. Some of his teaching and preaching. And yes, there was healing going on too. Now we can see the kingdom play out. When, when, we, when we look at those beatitudes, when we consider the salt and the light, when we, when we listen to Jesus' words about, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, and upholding, not only upholding the law, but fulfilling it, taking it not only by the letter, but in the heart behind it. Do you see what's going on here? What's going on is pretty amazing because it's Jesus showing what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Some people think, well, this isn't really going to happen until later on down the road, but why aren't we going for it now? Why are we trying to live that, day, that way today? What's holding us back from living like the people of God, living like citizens of his kingdom? Me, at least that's what's keeping me back. Peter, oh, when God reigns in our hearts, by the way, uh, he modifies our lives. That's part of the kingdom. Peter says it this way. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word 
as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the work of the kingdom of God. So it's general over all creation. That kingdom is particular in those who are following Christ. It is also an eternal kingdom. Christians ought to pray, the Baptist faith, the message says, and labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the age. There was a guy lived late 5th, early 6th century. His name was Benedict of Nursia. Benedict was a monk, and he saw there wasn't really a standard for monks that, at that time. Some monks were doing all kinds of stuff. Some monks were spending all day and all night praying and praying and praying and not really doing much of anything else. Some monks were doing all kinds of labor and not really much praying. They were just kind of living by themselves and say they were dedicated to God, but there wasn't much spiritual growth in the process. Some monks were together in community. Some were by themselves out in the middle of the desert. Some were living in comfort. Some were living in abject poverty. Benedict said, we need to give people... I need to give people a guide. If they're going to do this, a, a balanced sort of way of living this monastic lifestyle. And so he wrote the rule. The rule is, well, it's a bunch of rules. But it's a guide for how to be a monk. Now, I'm not telling you go read the rule and live by every single principle. But one of the things that he stresses in there that I think is particularly helpful for us is what uh, in Latin is... Uh, the phrase ora et labora. Anybody ever heard that? It's actually, it's actually a, a, a slightly different variation on it is the, the motto for the city of Toledo, Ohio. I don't, know, I don't know why they picked that, but ora et labora. It means prayer and work. You can probably hear labora, labor. Okay. Prayer and work. He held that through prayer and through work together that we can cooperate better with God's activity in the world. It's this balance, communing with God and actively participating in the work of his kingdom, that coalescence of the two that helps bring the kingdom to reality in the present. <laughs> That's why Jesus tells his disciples to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And right after the prayer instructs them, if you forgive others their trespasses, God will forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, you have to not only pray that God's will will be done, you actually have to do his will. It takes both. I think there's a lot of wisdom. Benedict is on to something. By the way, he's so on to something that his rule is used as the standard for monastic communities even today, 1,500 years after he wrote it. That's, that's pretty good staying power. Prayers and action coalesce for kingdom advancement. And that's the hallmark of the kingdom today. But I said this is an internal kingdom, right? How much more true will it be 
when God's sanctifying work within us is done. See, we're in process. We're, we're loading. We're buffering. We're, we haven't fully made it yet. God is still working in us. Whether you're five, 55, or 105, if you ain't dead, you ain't done with God's work. But if you ain't dead, you ain't done growing toward being more like Christ. God's work of sanctification continues in the life of the believer until the day that he finally finishes it and, and we're glorified. And so until that day comes, the kingdom is still a work in progress. But once that day comes, it will be finished and the kingdom will be consummated. And the funny thing is it happens through a child. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, or as my Hebrew professor said, Wonder of a Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The kingdom is consummated not only through a child, but through a branch. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu for those who, who like to track the names of God. He'll exercise justice righteously. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the sheep on his right and puts the goats on his left. He turns to the sheep and he says, y'all come enjoy the fruits of your inheritance. Because when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was uh, sick, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. All these examples of things that they did. And they say, when did we see you like all this? And he says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did also to me. And he turns to the goats. It's not so much smiles. It's depart from me, you workers of iniquity, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. All those things that they did not do and they say, when did we see you like that? And he tells them the same thing. You did not do it for the least of these. You did not do it for me. God's kingdom is general over all creation and it's concentrated, it's particular and those who acknowledge his reign, it's also eternally consummated through the return of Jesus Christ. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Greek phrase is interesting. He shall reign for the ages of the ages. They don't even have a term forever. It's just ongoing ages. Pray with me. Father, your kingdom is a general kingdom. It's over all creation. It is a particular kingdom. May it be even more concentrated in us. And one day 
it will be completely consummated as an eternal kingdom. It already is eternal, but then it will be complete. So in the words of Paul to the Corinthian believers, help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that in the Lord our our labor is not in vain. As we do our work to advance your kingdom, as we preach your gospel, as we share Christ with others, as we seek reconciliation and healing in relationships and those that we love and care about, we pray that our work would not be in vain, but you would make your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that you use our efforts, our work, our submission to you as the vehicle by which it happens. Lord, we know it's up to you, but we also know we play a part. So use our obedience for your glory and bring your kingdom here. In Jesus, our wonderful King, it's the most holy and just name we pray. Amen.